My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is the Return to Embodiment. episode, I'm speaking with Melissa Walker. Melissa is a somatic psychotherapist and a dance movement therapist who received her training at Naropa University. Melissa shares about how she has integrated her personal and her professional learning in this area into a practice called somatic concentric sex therapy and which she writes about in her book, Whole Body Sex, Somatic Sex Therapy and the Lost Language of the Erotic Body. In this conversation, Melissa helps us to conceptualize sexuality and sensuality in a positive way, confronting and dismantling some of the messages that may have been internalized about our own erotic life and pleasure. Melissa invites us to become aware of the magnificence of our bodies within which eroticism lives and moves. For more information about Melissa, you can find her online at the Embodied Relationships Center in Colorado. And she has a training coming up for therapists in February and one coming up in the Pacific Northwest in August 2022. Without further ado, I welcome you to this conversation with Melissa Walker. I'm Kim Rockwell, and you're listening to The Return to Embodiment. I want to show you something. (gasps) You got my book! Oh! (laughs) Um, I'm so excited about it. I haven't actually dug into it yet. You haven't cracked it open uh, yet? I really like the picture on the front because I'm really hoping that we can talk about the ecological erotic and there's a tree on the front. And so it's whole body sex, somatic sex therapy, and the lost language of the erotic body. That's right. Oh, good. I found that when I talk about sex with people, it either turns them off completely or I get like real deep with them. Like there's like so much trust built <laughs> in like just opening up that conversation. And then for some yeah. people, they're like, wait, why are you talking about sex? I'm leaving, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that avoidance is one of the first instincts that people have when um, sex is referenced. Yeah. It says a lot about what it's like to up in probably many cultures. It's that avoidance relationship to sex and sexuality but underneath it all I just feel like it's a it's something that keeps us afraid of our own bodies creates a mistrust in our own bodies that's really unfortunate because it's the source of our vitality is our sexuality it's our relationship to not just sex maybe as we might imagine it but you know our relationship to pleasure our relationship to expanding into the space, how we take up space, how our body relates to other people's bodies. So it's really unfortunate. And I often feel sadness when I, you know, talk to my clients about their relationship with sex and sexuality and how they learned about sex 
you know, the messages that they got growing up. Sometimes I hear positive messages, but it's really unfortunate that more often than not, I hear really negative, um, avoidant, confusing messages that people have gotten about sexuality. So it makes sense that we would avoid, avoid the topic because it's a, it's messy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Messages like, don't do it. It's not allowed. Okay, fine. Now you can do it. Yeah. It's such a push pull relationship. Yeah. Don't, don't, when you're younger, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't touch yourself. Uh, don't, we don't look at that person. Don't look at that movie scene, blah, 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 blah. Right. But then, oh, but then you get, you like fall in love or you get into a committed relationship or a marriage, depending on the values of the culture. Okay. Now you can do it. Okay. Go ahead. Go, go make Mozart music with your partner, you know? And it's like, there's no foundation. No, I don't know how to do chopsticks. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> Just the basics. How do you put a pattern together? The, that dance between me and my body and what's pleasurable for me and what's safe enough for me and what I'm interested in. And then combine that with a whole other universe of a person with their own desires and pleasures and boundaries and histories. And, and we don't even know how to put those basic patterns together. And so we just smash into each other. Yeah. I want to get to my main question that I ask, but before I'd like to just ask um, about your process of being called to write this book, your process Mm. of moving towards rather than avoiding (laughs) this topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know that's probably a big question. I mean, I've answered this question a bunch of times at this point. And every time I answer it, I get when I take a moment to pause and say, okay, where do I begin? It's a wave that crashes over me over and over again. Um, because there's so many layers of myself that I've explored in order to get to this point. Um, there's so many layers. It's so rich and deep. And, and I love you know, taking my clients through that process and watching them start to move through all of these layers as that wave starts to crash over them of like, oh, wow, that's, that's why I am where I am. That's why I'm on your couch right now. When I was growing up, I was living in between a couple of worlds. Um, so I did most of my growing up in Utah. My dad was uh, Roman Catholic. And so I was being raised Catholic and I was surrounded by the Mormon culture. So uh, conservative on both ends, there's a conservative element um, to Catholicism in terms of sexuality. And there's a conservative, very conservative element to sexuality in the Mormon religion as well. And so I found myself in the midst of that exploring where do I fit in? Um, Who am I in the midst of all this? My mother, when I was growing up, I have many distinct memories of her saying, trust your body, listen to your body. And I would get in these different situations around these 
you know, more conservative religions and the way that it was expressed through friends and neighbors and that sort of thing. <clears throat> and I would feel alarm bells going off in my body continually as I was developing, going through my sexual maturity process and my um, emotional maturation process and uh, had a very difficult time finding my place in all of that because I didn't, my body didn't fit in these, um, in these realms, the realm of the, the Catholic religion, the realm of the Mormon religion. I was somewhere in between. And when I was 16, I went to see um, a friend of mine uh, dancing at a restaurant in downtown Salt Lake City. It was a Lebanese restaurant. And she and her student troupe was performing belly dancing. And I remember sitting at that table. It's so clear to me as I remember this moment, watching her, she was my age, she was 16. And what she could do with her body, the ways that she could move her body, the freedom of movement, the multimodal aspect of belly dance where one part of your body is doing one thing while the, you know, shimmying, for example, and the other part of the body is doing something very flow, uh, like with snake arms, that sort of thing. And I'm sitting here watching her and everything in my body said, yes, that's it. Watching her take up space, watching the sequence of movement from the tips of her hair all the way down through her fingertips and her toes and her hips. And uh, I was absolutely mesmerized. And my friend and I, that very next week, started taking belly dancing lessons from a local dance teacher. And as I was sinking into these movements that came really naturally to me, and I loved them. I loved how my body felt belly dancing. Um, even though later on I started dealing with chronic pain because I found out I had scoliosis. And so pain has also been a part of my story since this time, this is when it really started to activate in my body and became very painful. So I was dancing between the pleasure of belly dancing, the pleasure of moving my body in that way, the pleasure of moving with other women, other people in class. I didn't just take classes with women. There were other genders too. And, and also dancing with the pain at the same time. I found a way to be in my body where I was expressing my vitality. I was expressing my sexuality in the broader way of viewing sexuality. And I felt integrated and I felt confident and I felt beautiful and I felt strong. And it was such a major turning point for me in my, in my life, in my relationship with my body. And I would get questions. So we would perform at, you know, art festivals and uh, local ethnic restaurants I remember distinctly at the Utah Arts Festival, a man walked up and said, you girls are awful young to be doing such a, a sexual dance. And I was a bit stunned by that question in the moment. And it started dawning on me, ah, the appropriation of the form of belly dance 
what he was experiencing was what he was prioritizing in that question. Yes. He didn't understand no. what you just described about the power and the integration mm-hmm. and the sense of beauty mm-hmm. and the sense of um, wholeness mm-hmm. you were finding in the movement. Yeah. He was layering on it. This is for me. Yes. yes. <laughs> You're dancing for me, right? Yes. No, no, sir. No. Yes. <laughs> Sexual consumerism. Yes, that was his lens. Absolutely. And for me, the dance was about getting so close to the intricacies of my muscles that I could, that I could invite my muscles to, to move in different ways at the same time, to sequence movement so gradually from one part of my body to the next. That was where my attention was. And that I know is the beginning of me doing somatic psychotherapy and doing dance therapy was the kind of the quality of attention and listening that I did with my body was so pleasurable and so intricate at the same time. That was what I was experiencing. He wasn't witnessing me from a place of wholeness. He was seeing me through the the lens of our culture of what it means for a young woman to move her body in those ways and to be, uh, to show a certain amount of skin um, and, you know, had a hard time controlling his own arousal and had to blurt something awkward out to us. And that was so interesting to me. And I got really curious about it. And I kept that curiosity within the realm of belly dancing. And I started teaching and I started, you know, performing in lots of different places. And I kept that question there. Meanwhile, I'm going to college and I'm doing, I started out doing art, but then I switched to psychology because I'm so interested in the way that people think and motivations and relationships in particular. I really wanted to be a therapist. I wanted to be a couples therapist in particular. And then I found a way to combine dance and psychology and that was dance movement therapy. I did a internet search when I was in college and Naropa came up. And again, my whole body said, yes, that's it, you know? And uh, so I applied to Naropa and I, and I got in. And then when I got there, I was so surprised to find out that sexuality was not a part of the somatic conversation. This, this thing that for you had been such a profound yes huh. was not a part of the conversation. Yeah. I was really surprised. I had to really go searching for it. And the, one of the people I found I could have that conversation with and who, um, you know, excited and interested in having that conversation with me was Christine Caldwell. She was a, an instructor of mine and a mentor. She was my thesis chair. She was wonderful. And I, I decided in that moment that people had to know about this and I needed to know about this. I didn't know how do I actually navigate uh, within the realm of somatic psychotherapy, within the realm of dance therapy, how do I work with sexuality? How do I work with my own And then how do I work with my clients around that without having 
you know, conversations where people are just avoiding the topic. I needed to have a broader foundation for it. And so through my, through my training in, in dance therapy and somatic counseling psychology, and then I started doing sex therapy trainings because I, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a sex therapist. Let's do this. And <laughs> I started, I started taking sex therapy courses and nobody was talking about the body in the way that somatic psychotherapy talks about the body by letting the body talk. Right. I, I was yeah. stunned. Yeah, and, and this is once again, you're acting as a bridge between worlds, mm-hmm. like the dance world, the somatic world and the sex therapy world. You're mm-hmm. kind of finding a way to within yourself, yeah, pull these pieces together to find some integration. Yeah. So you studied sex therapy mm-hmm. I did. and then you bridged it to the somatic. Yes. Yep. I took one, one workshop from a woman who was trained in gestalt and talked about the body psychotherapy side of things was, was her language. She was fantastic. Um, her name is Stella Resnick. It was so interesting because I was sitting in the workshop with her and she, I was like, okay, here we go. She's talking about the wisdom of the body. She's talking about listening to what the body is saying. And still I knew there was more to be explored. There was, there was more to say there. And so over time and working with my clients by me pulling together my, my training and who I was as a person and my experience in belly dancing and all this stuff, my clients and my students, because I started doing workshops and training other therapists to talk about and sexuality with their clients from a somatic lens. And how do we do that? And it was really me getting the conversation going and sharing what I did know and listening very closely to the questions and the curiosities of my students and my clients. And really it was my students and my clients that taught me how to teach this. And it was how I started drawing models on the whiteboard in my office to say, okay, when we look at your sexuality, let's let's look at it as a map that then you can, you have your internal somatic map and then we can have an external map to, to oscillate between, you know, what happens when I see this? Okay. Now what happens in my body being able to oscillate back and forth. And so that was where the book came from was me taking the insights, the things that I pulled together. So for example, I talk about erotic bodyfulness as a practice which is a combination of mindfulness, contemplative practice, basically, bodyfulness, which is a concept that Christine Caldwell came up with, which is beautiful, uh, and eroticism. And I pulled all those things together and developed erotic bodyfulness as a practice. How do we relate with our arousal, with our sexuality in a moment-to-moment contemplative somatic way? So I pulled all of these things together and put it together in a book and put a tree on the cover of it because it had, there had to be a tree on the cover. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So good. What a journey. Um, and I love how you've woven it from the very beginning, speaking to how the body was 
what led you? Mm-hmm. Your mom said, listen to your body. And from the very beginning, you mm-hmm. saw the things that your body said yes to, and you moved towards it. Yes. Um, and now you have this curriculum and this book that mm-hmm. can help other people and their own sexuality um, yes. the way that's integrated. And that, the, that phrase of erotic bodyfulness is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and the invitation is for people to become aware of the magnificence of their bodies, of the way that eroticism lives in their bodies, the magnificence of it. Because even, even though my mom told me, listen to your body, trust your instincts, that sort of thing. When I would follow my pleasure, when I would follow what I was interested in, I would still feel elements of fear and shame. And I was so curious about what is that about? Why am I feeling it? Why am I feeling that? I'm not Mormon. Why am I experiencing the kind of shame that I see in my Mormon friends? I personally had left the Catholic church. So why am I still experiencing? experiencing these scary shadowy elements to sexuality because that's not my framework we talk about the nervous system is experience dependent you know we are formed from our experiences it's this intermingling of what the environment presents to us the people the places the the ecosystems that we're exposed to and then how our body responds and it's that dance that goes back and forth so this has also been a part of my personal journey as unraveling where these shadows are still layered into my flesh, very much a part of me. It's not about making these body stories just go away so I can just feel happy. Like it's not about feeling happy. It's about developing meaningfulness, a meaningful relationship with my sexuality. That's what this is about for me is that this is seeing our own magnificence and challenging the shadows that are presented to us slowly with intention in that contemplative way that we're not just out, out in the world reacting, you know, but we're actually coming into a relationship of response to our own movement impulses and our desires. What I'm hearing and wondering is moving into meaningfulness and also moving out of fear of even the shadows. That's exactly it. And that that's the most important piece right there is that when the shadows come up, a lot of times I see people want to kind of run screaming from the shadows because those shadows are very real, you know, and it makes sense that we would be afraid of them. And it makes sense that we would feel shame in response to them, you know, shame that's socially created emotion within us. I, I create erotic maps with my clients. So there's three, there's three parts to the erotic map and they're all overlapping circles. And one of those circles is where your erotic resource is. Where do you feel comfortable in your eroticism? Uh, where do you feel confident? Where you feel at home, excited and relaxed in your sexuality? That's the place of resource that overlaps with the place of challenge, the places where we are both excited and nervous. We're both interested 
and experiencing some pleasure and also anxious and perhaps a little afraid. That's the challenge place. And it's a place where we can actually do a lot of our work because we can practice resourcing, pulling in a bit of the resource so that we can stay present with what's challenging for us. Clients that come in and they have presenting sexual issues, that's for the place of challenge. And then overlapping with that is the shadow place. Those are the uh, places that dysregulate us the most, the mean things that we can say to ourselves, the damaging beliefs that we've adopted from our culture, the, the violative experiences that we've had. Uh, that's where our, the shadows of our lineage live in us. So, but by putting it into a map with these three circles, I want to give people the impression that you don't have to get stuck in any one place. There's no corners to get lost in. There's always movement that our body is continually moving through resource challenge shadow and the overlap that is inherent in all of those aspects of ourselves, because that's the nature of the body. There's a, there's an organicity to us that orientation towards growth and change and movement that we can trust will be there for us no matter what. I think maybe I want to go back to the question that I like to start my podcast with, even though we didn't, because I felt like I needed to start with your book (laughs) (laughs) and the story of your book. But uh, the, the question is, how is embodiment to you? Yeah, just in asking the question that way reframes the question itself. How is embodiment versus what is embodiment? What implies a static state and a place of arrival, I think. How is embodiment is more true to what embodiment actually is, which is a a process. It's a practice. I've had this conversation a lot, um, you know, with my students and my clients and stuff, because the term embodiment uh, there's a danger in it being appropriated by a certain profile, a certain kind of person, uh, like a dominant culture. Here's what embodiment looks like. There's a particular ideal that we have around that that can get into some tricky territory. But embodiment, how, how is embodiment in particular? It's a way that we relate with our bodies moment to moment. And it's what Ermgard. Barteniev and Peggy Hackney talked about that um, internal connectivity with external expressivity that we're tending to the sensations and sequence of movement and impulses of the body intentionally expressing it externally based on the context that we're in. Is it safe enough for me to be to practice embodiment in this moment, or is this environment actually not safe enough for me to practice embodiment? But it's a practice. It can become a choice over time. You know, we make choices based on the information that we have in the moment. For example, I was at the gym this morning. I do my elliptical in the morning um, to get my body moving. So I'm still rehabilitating my, my body. And I ask myself that question and I recognize as I'm on the elliptical, there's times when I'll close my eyes so I can really feel what's happening in my body, how my movement is coordinating itself, how 
where my weight is shifting, uh, what emotions I might be feeling, uh, all of these things. And I asked myself this question, is it safe enough for me to be embodied in this moment, to, to be practicing embodiment in this space? And I think that's an important part of the equation, especially when it comes to sexuality. Do I feel safe enough to express my sexuality, to breathe in and expand my body into my kinesphere in this moment with more sensual movement or not? So it's a, it's a choice. And the, the work that I do is about allowing that to be a, uh, uh, an informed choice, because especially when it comes to sexuality and eroticism, I work with a lot of people who've experienced coercive sex, sex, who have been the coercer. Uh, I've experienced, um, you know, working with people who have experienced direct or indirect violation. And so a big part of my work is helping to create a context in my office that allows them to be safe enough to explore at their own pace, their, their sexuality, their experiences, you know, so that they can practice embodiment in a way that is nourishing to them versus trying to fit into an ideal of what it means to be embodied. Yeah. While the erotic imagination can be a really wonderful source, mm -hmm. there are ways in which it can constrict and project and yes. pigeonhole mm -hmm. what the possibilities are. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is exactly what I experienced as a belly dancer. That's exactly it. Yeah. And so I had to create my own safe enough context to be able to, to practice the dance, to learn it, to perform it in what spaces did I perform and what spaces would I not perform? Because I knew that I, that I had the possibility of experiencing being pigeonholed or seen through a consumerist objectified lens, you know, uh, versus someone being able to witness the story that I was telling with my body. We'd go to see lots of different kinds of dance, modern dance and ballet and that telling stories with bodies, it's, it's magnificent. And yet there's something about belly dance that evokes something a little different mm -hmm. for people. Um, because part of the story might be that it arouses yes. the witness. And this is also a profound part of sexuality, right? Understanding yeah. um, the relationship with the gaze and being seen and how that can, yes. um, can nurture or excite mm -hmm. further. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And it's so unfortunate because, uh, like you were saying, the erotic imagination can be nourishing. It can be such a playground, you know, in the way that uh, our relationship with our bodies can be a playground and, you know, experience our bodies and learning about what is this impulse and, oh, I'm attracted. I feel, I feel arousal in my body in relationship to that image or that person or that natural feature, even, you know, we talked about eco-sexuality or eco-eroticism and that that's a learning for me that that other person, place, whatever doesn't owe me anything because I feel that in my body. That's, that's a learning for me of, oh, that's so interesting that that turns me on and that feels great. And 
what is that about for me? And, and now how do I channel that in a way that's both satisfying and respectful and consensual, you know, and being able to ask that question, it, it squeezes us in a way that's that, that challenges us to grow. Yeah. So let me, let me kind of um, see if I'm understanding what you're saying, because I really love this. And I think it's really, I think it's important with is when a person is aroused, when there is that experience of internal uh, stimulation in response to someone or something, Mm -hmm. um, finding a way to enjoy that savor Mm -hmm. that appreciate it Mm -hmm. without building a story about the other yeah that expects something of them or that um that does this process that we're talking about originally yes (laughs) how easy that can happen and how um important that Mm -hmm. process is absolutely yeah because it's in the realm of consent that we say yes. And it's the yes stimulates internal growth and relationship growth as well. Consent is not there, obviously, or perhaps not actually not obviously to a lot of people. It causes a minimization, a wound, a retracting from taking up space, nervous system dysregulation. And that does not stimulates it inhibits growth <clears throat> it inhibits awareness and what you're talking about isn't consent as it's understood on college campuses yeah of like having a, a question are mm-hmm. you into this are mm-hmm. you willing to do this you're talking about a, a fuller m- more nuanced yes of consent that takes in the somatic this is a question that I cook with my clients often, which is how can you understand consent? How can you ask? How can you answer in the realm of consent? If you cannot feel your own body, if you cannot sense your own body, if we get taken over by our arousal in the way that it has its own momentum and trajectory, independent of our conscious awareness? How can we even entertain the idea of consent? Because it's not a part of our foundation in terms of how we learn about sex and relationship. And so I work with a lot of couples where they're describing to me their sex life because I ask in detail, you know, tell me, tell me details. So many people would love to be a fly on the wall. Ah. (laughs) Yeah. What it comes down to is I love what I do. I love being able to hold space for people to talk about their most intimate, most vulnerable selves and to watch them time light up around their sexuality and light up around these conversations is so satisfying to me. It's so wonderful, you know? Right. So I, you're, you're, you're retraining, you're training that, that relationship with this primary erotic impulse in a way that dislodges the fear 
and allows for those, those moments of connection with another person where those, those yeah. maps, those maps can actually fit together in a nice way. Yeah. 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 I love Kim. I love that you just said the word dislodge. It dislodges the fear that it's so funny. That is exactly the language I use with my clients. Like let's dislodge what is stuck in you. And I'm going to help give you a framework to talk about it, to, to invite your body to move in a way that helps move this dislodged piece through you so that you can understand it again or understand it for the first time. So it doesn't, it's not that shadow piece anymore. That's ruling you from the shadows, but it's something you are aware of and you can identify and actually work with and unwind uh, fear and shame and trauma and that sort of thing. And it's this waking up moment that I see in people. I live for these moments. It's so wonderful. And uh, like what I was saying before, I see this a lot in clients where the when they describe their sex life to me, they're describing coercive sex, not in intention. They don't mean to be coercive with each other. They love each other. They care about each other. They even respect each other. And yet when it comes to sex, sex becomes something else, disconnected from who they are, right? And so now we get to incorporate back their sex life and who they are erotically with each other back into their vision of the we of who they truly are, which is people that love and care about each other. That's why they're sitting in my office because they want to, they want to learn. They want to, they want to improve their relationship. They want to improve their sex life, you know? And so one of the first things I notice often is a coercive sexual style behaviorally, the, the patterns they're enacting with each other are coercive. And so we get to slow things way down. I do a lot of experiential work with people and have them, their move, their, their bodies actually moving in the space and uh, exploring arousal being present in their body, inviting in that more contemplative slowness and inviting movement that allows arousal energy and pleasure to be both generated as well as contained not in a rigid way, but in a, a flexible kind of way. Um, in dance therapy would say an effort kind of a way versus a pre-effort. There's so many, so many people are still in a place of sexual pre-effort where they're learning and defending. And so it's about bringing them into a place of that full bodied effort experience where they feel more confident that they can communicate more confident in moving their bodies with that awareness and with that relationship between the two of them, the consent, both verbal consent. So I have them listen to the words that they're saying, the tone in the voice, as well as the language of the body, how the body is moving or not, how the breath is moving or not, color to the skin, you know, this sort of thing stunning for so many people that they can influence their own arousal stunning to them yeah so and then it it sounds like a real process of attunement attunement within yes. to one's own arousal process yeah um, deepening the comfort and communicating about that mm -hmm. as well as 
um, not losing yourself in that, mm -hmm. remaining attuned also to the other mm -hmm. and um, creative about mm -hmm. the options with which to meet another person's arousal. Yeah, broadening that movement repertoire and that it comes from a place of secure attachment with our own bodies, secure attachment with our own sexuality, which means it's not that there's an absence of difficulties, you know, it's how we relate to those difficulties that matter. Mm -hmm. Loving ourselves through that, seeking awareness and understanding. Mm -hmm. So when those moments come up, when there is a shadow that arises or there's mm -hmm. a moment of noticing a turn yeah. off, Yes, then we slow down. One of the things Stella Resnick would say is, isn't that interesting? You know, isn't that interesting? Do you feel that shadow coming up? Isn't that interesting? That impulse at any point during the sexual experience, at any point during that human sexual response that's nonlinear, these shadows can pop their heads up and cause us to freeze or cause us to dissociate or cause us to do a myriad of different things. And when we are practicing embodiment, practicing what I like to call erotic bodyfulness in those moments, we can be awake to it. Isn't that interesting? This is coming up now. What is that about? Let's, how am I feeling? What is the context? All of these elements come together in a a moment of awareness. And then we can say, ah, oh, this is what's happening. This is what my body needs before I can continue this erotic moment with myself or with my partner, uh, even multiple partners. That is the medicine that we need, I think, being able to be aware in those moments. In uh, framing it as something interesting, mm -hmm. it's not a fail, right? Mm -hmm. So often, if it doesn't work out or if mm -hmm. there is a shadow that comes up of mm -hmm. like um, one of the things that you talked about last time was non-concordance. Like yes. you actually do want to be intimate with this person, yeah. but you're having this body response that says no. Yes. And so mm -hmm. the complexity of that and allowing for that to not be about not loving that person or rejecting uh -huh. that person or mm -hmm. um, it being mm -hmm. reflective of, of a flaw in the relationship, mm -hmm. but rather a interesting mm -hmm. thing to trace, be curious about. Yeah, and arousal non-concordance. Emily Nagoski did a great talk about this. Uh, she did a TED talk on this. One of the things that she said that I, that I really want to underscore is let's talk about arousal non-concordance all the time. <laughs> let's have it be a part of the conversation all the time because number one, so incredibly normal. It's a normal aspect of, of being in an erotic body and it's not a problem. It's a moment to slow down and start getting curious about, wow, my my mind is interested in being sexual and my heart is interested in being sexual. My body is not responding the way I would like in this moment, what's going on. 
and let's pay attention to what that's about. Um, there's other times where the body might be turned on, uh, you know, genital lubrication, engorgement, that sort of thing, experiencing pleasure. And at the same time, the mind and the heart, one of the two or both are saying, yeah, this, this is not, this isn't, this is not what I want right now, actually, you know, this is such an important experience to really slow down around. And so when I work with couples and they talk about experiences of arousal non-concordance, my invitation to them is to, first of all, that it's that self-to-self attachment of, oh, secure attachment. What does my body need right now? That this is not a problem. My body's telling me to slow down or something going on, right? And then the other aspect of it is that the partner can hold space for the other person to do that, supporting them coming into a place of understanding and maybe even coming into a place of congruence in their eroticism in that moment. So supporting their partner to do that because they are a, a universe into themselves that's figuring themselves out in the moment and learning how to grow to that next layer. And that we wanna support our partners to do that. You know, when I, when I describe that process to, to couples, it's like, okay, when your partner says, whoa, slow down, or, you, or if they can't use words, because sometimes an arousal, when a trigger comes up, they can't speak verbally. So listening with their bodies to their partner and noticing, oh, their breathing is shallow. Oh, they're not moving as much. Something's going on. So that's where you slow down and say, do we, do we need to slow down? Don't ask what's wrong. <laughs> that's another thing people do is like, what's wrong? Are you okay? You know, it's like, whoa. Everybody gets up in their head. I know. Then you're up in your head and you're like, oh my God, I have to tell, I have to reassure my partner that I'm okay, that I'm not, you know, that sort of thing. But to say, okay, let's slow down to, to start to use that language with each other. And so that they can explore what's happening both for themselves and for their partner. And for that partner to understand, like you said, it's not a rejection of them just because your partner is, is needing to slow down during sex or maybe to stop sex in that moment is not necessarily commentary on them. It's not a global rejection of them. It's that their partner is having a bodily experience that is asking for space, that's asking for attention, that's asking for reassurance, that's asking for uh, support. And once they understand that, then there's an emotional intimacy that gets to happen. That's so beautiful, so beautiful. And so, so beautiful, so transparent and so true. Like, I get to watch people just grow as a couple in those moments. It's really fantastic. It's like an opportunity instead of colluding with the cultural projections. Yes. It's an opportunity to let go of those and really be with mm-hmm. another in mm-hmm. their complexity. Yeah. Let go of the story of how sex should look or let go of how a relationship should yes. look. And yeah. allow for slowing. Yes. Which just being invited to slow down yeah. feels very erotic to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like mo- yeah. moving quickly. Yes. Maybe it's as simple as that it sometimes it often 
elicits that stress response, whereas yeah. flowing, yeah, um, elicits more of that opportunity for expansion and settling and listening and mm-hmm. um, feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I've heard clients say so many times, "Let's just hurry up and get this over with." When it comes to sex, like let's just let's just get to the intercourse part of it and just let's just push through this, you know. And they're just trying to get the moment done with. Yeah. So inviting the slowness can be arousing. It can also be frightening to slow down and actually invite sensation and feeling. You talked about not colluding with the culture. So this is another place where consent is really important that when a partner is asking for sex to stop or slow down, they're not necessarily saying, right, it's not a rejection of the partner. It's, uh, this is my my opportunity to say no to something I learned from my culture, that I learned from a culture that was imposed upon me, perhaps. I'm going to say no to that. And I'm going to say yes to myself in this moment. That is what is available to us in those moments of slowness, having relationship with the resistance internally, as opposed to blowing past boundaries and knocking over obstacles and that sort of thing, but just pressing our hand into this place of of resistance, this place that wants to stop or slow down and saying what's actually here in this moment. Those are the moments where we're able to unravel the knot that we got tied into because of our experiences in, in our own culture, uh, the experience of another, a dominant culture being, being pressed on us. We need, to, we need to find resource in the slowness. And that, that's another uh, practice. It's a practice. It's not always easy for people, especially when, when pain is involved. When I hear you say, and maybe this is something that a lot of therapists talk about, but when I hear you say that saying no is actually saying yes to something within me, yes, I get emotional. Like oh, that's yeah. so beautiful to me um, because I also have this sense that like the yes doesn't count unless we have that sense of no. Yeah. Right. Like where does a true yes come from? If it's not from a sense that I can know, Mm -hmm. I can have this, this no until the, the yes truly arises and and out. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and so getting to know our no, getting to know uh, our, our, where our edges are is the first part of that. And then we can cook. We can, we can get cooked in ourselves. Like our body's a cauldron. It gets to like cook what's going on in there. And from that, the yes is born, you know, which is beautiful. Very beautiful. Yeah. I like the witchy cauldron reference. (laughs) (laughs) I have the privilege of working with people who are in various communities that are actively chewing on this together. They're actively practicing consent. They're actively practicing slowness. I work with people in the BDSM community and uh, people who are practicing ethical non-monogamy in different ways. 
there are parts of those communities that are doing this really, really, really well. And I'm so glad I get to work with them and doing my own explorations around this with myself, with my own partner. You know, this is how we do it. We study ourselves. And um, I, I studied also five rhythms, the five rhythms with uh, Melissa Michaels. She studied with Gabrielle Roth, who created the five rhythms, you know. And it, in my experience in, in that community, it's also so instrumental for me. And what Melissa talks about is becoming our somatic researchers of ourself. So in each of these moments, we're, we're researching, we're studying our somatic experience as our bodies are moving, as our bodies are in action. Even in the place of the rhythm of stillness, there's still movement going on. And so we're still studying. And that's where the magic happens in that studying of ourselves and that trusting of ourselves that that yes is going to be born when I give it the space, when I, when I give it the proverbial face-to-face -face interaction, witnessing myself, that the, the loving, compassionate witness that they talk about in um, that we talk about in authentic movement. Would you call what you were describing with like BDSM? Is that kink? Kink is the umbrella and, and BDSM is one of the types. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so those would be like something that would be on that potentially a challenge. Certain. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Because in, in the realm of BDSM, people actively play with and pleasure. They actively pay, play with risk being restrained, finding pleasure. It runs the gamut, right? People exploring shame, people ex exploring uh, power exchange, dominant and submissive, top and bottom, but really exploring the aspects of us that can, that can come from a shadowy place that then can be combined with resource and consent, and we can learn so much. And there's a lot of unraveling that does that, that happens in those spaces. And then we grow into what's next now, what's interesting, for example, you know, bondage or restrainment play might be interesting to someone for a very long time. And then they get to the point where they've practiced it so much. It doesn't quite have that interest to them anymore. It's like, okay, what's next, you know, but it's in, yeah, it's just inviting the evolution intentionally. And allowing that being a researcher mm -hmm. going in mm -hmm. to an experience. So it would play kind of between those three circles. Mm -hmm. Like some of the shame piece might be in the shadow part. Yes. And then it might get played out in the challenge. Yes. Through some kind of dominant or submissive piece. I can be aware of my resources or I can slow down. Yes. Yeah. And, and then we get to ask the question of what's underneath this shame. We're, we're not inviting the shame to stay stagnant and exactly how it is. We're also not forcing it to go away or trying to ignore it. It's an invitation to say, wow, shame just showed up for me in my body. And it feels like this wiggly column down the center of my body. And what does it want me to know? 
I'm going to take a moment to see it and investigate it and be with it. And, you know, if I move my body with the wiggles, what, what, what happens? Does it stay the same? Does it change? What's underneath the shame? What's the memory that comes up for me? What is it that I really need in this moment for this shame to be able to unravel itself, to become what's next? Emotions are continually transforming from one thing to the next. You know, we feel, we feel sadness and we cry and we feel something different on the other side. And so it's an invitation in the erotic realm to say this feeling, this sensation, this emotion that has come up wants to teach me something, wants to give me an experience, like take me for a ride, you know, and with intention, I will follow this with consent, with, with slowness, with, uh, you know, a loving attention in this moment. And then that shame will transform into something else. It will uncover something, you know, it's like excavating. You're bringing that to your individual clients, this excavation process and this, um, dislodging and this transformation mm-hmm. and how in some sense by bringing the conversation of sex to the dance movement therapy community you're doing the act, exact same thing yes on a broader scale our field just like the somatic field mm-hmm. hasn't wholeheartedly claimed the mm-hmm. relationship between dance mm-hmm. and sexuality yeah. um, and so I'm really interested to hear you talk about that part of the need for that um, expansion, mm-hmm. because to your point earlier, mm-hmm. the field likely made choices about the safety mm-hmm. of allowing conversations of sexuality mm-hmm. when we were already a marginalized field that was about dancing. <laughs> We're like, please don't, please don't project yourselves on us. We're trying to establish ourselves. Yes. Um, We're trying to establish the, the clinical effectiveness of what we do. And so there's the context. The culture is the context. Was it safe enough for dance therapists to talk about sex and sexuality while they were establishing themselves? a community primarily made up of women and and primarily white women in particular. Was that context safe enough to do so? I don't think so. I talked to a dance therapist. Her name is Rebecca. She wrote a brilliant and very brief article in the American Dance Therapy Journal back in the 70s about sexuality and aggression being two sides of the same coin. I was elated to find this, to say, oh my gosh, the dance therapist is talking about sexuality. Yes, you know? And I found her and I got a hold of her. And through our conversation, I realized what what you just said, you know, that the community was not quite ready to fully go in there. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, now we're ready. Now we're getting ready. I am ready. Yes, I am absolutely one of the dance therapists that is having this conversation and is very excited about it. And this is 
one of the reasons that I titled my book Whole Body Sex is because this is about bringing together these disparate parts, these abject parts of ourselves and our sexuality is one of the abject parts, the part that has been relegated to the shadows by bringing sexuality into the whole self, you know, bringing our, our pelvis and our genitals and the rest of our arousal anatomy, because really our whole body can be, our whole body is our arousal anatomy, really, you know, to bring all of us into the space in a way that is a full bodied effort expression when it's safe enough to do so. That right there is the acupuncture point, I think, that could unwind tons of dysregulation in so many bodies. And I am, I am on that job. I love that. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm so inspired by you. Yes, let's do it, Kim. <laughs> I was actually thinking about what was lost in terms of erotic countertransference mm-hmm. and um, the yes. learning that um, was missed, right? That mm-hmm. how confusing that can be mm-hmm. as a new dance therapist working with bodies. And mm-hmm. let's be honest, the mm-hmm. erotic is there. Because we are, we're ushering them into their bodies yes. in a way that's so intimate, intimate and compassionate. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm, I'm sitting here with this profound sense of how much this conversation is needed mm-hmm. in order yeah. to hold fully mm-hmm. what we do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I... I got the opportunity to be adjunct faculty at Naropa for four years. And I taught the professional orientation and counseling ethics class, which I loved. It's not a dry topic at all, even though so many students would come in and say, oh, this is going to be such a dry, you know, but then. No, this is going to be super juicy. Yeah, this is actually the juiciest class you could possibly participate in. Because we taught, we're talking about edges. We're challenging the edges of everything. And that is frightening and exciting at the same time. I, I would talk about it throughout the course, but then I spent two classes exclusively to talk about arousal, the intimacy of doing somatic psychotherapy, <clears throat> and the phenomena of erotic countertransference. And number one, knowing ourselves is a crucial part of that. Being able to map my own arousal, being able to map at least the edges of my shadow, if not really diving into my, my erotic shadow, so that when I'm sitting with, client, with my clients and a, something within me gets activated, I get turned on, I get turned off. I'm feeling a mixture of things, arousal, non-concordance, all these different things coming up. I can say, oh, that's, is, isn't that interesting? <laughs> isn't that interesting? I can breathe and I can shift to my body a little bit, have a relationship with myself that says, this is, this is mine. And there's something going on for me that's important for me. And maybe there's something important here going on that, will inform how I guide my client in this moment. So knowing myself, right? And then the other piece of that is 
when arousal happens in the room, because it will, even if you're not working with sexual issues with your clients, when you're, you, you know, helping your clients to practice self-love, you're inviting your clients to put their hands on their own bodies, to feel sensation like over their hearts or over their bellies or whatever, that's intimacy. And that in and of itself can create arousal in the body. And that's wonderful. It's wonderful that, that, that pleasurable, loving, compassionate experience is a catalyst of growth and change and, and, and developing that secure attachment. An yes. invitation to aliveness, right? An invitation Absolutely. to connecting with life force. Yes. And tracking where mm-hmm. does that arise for me? Yes. Because guess yes. what? You get to go out and listen mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. You get to yeah. go out and listen for the yeses and notice mm-hmm. where those come. Yeah. They come. Yeah. And, and sitting in the therapist seat, I get the opportunity to reflect back to them. That is yours. That belongs to you. That is, that is your beautiful connection with yourself right now to hold that safe enough context that is witnessing them in a loving and compassionate way that they get to, they get to really integrate that into themselves. I'm, I'm sitting here with how often um, as a clinician, when phenomena arise in the body, the story mm-hmm. that kind of usurps that, what you're describing mm-hmm. and experience arises. And then the brain is so desperate to tell a story, yes, to label what's going on mm-hmm. and how that has the potential to interfere. Like in this example, the, the phenomena of arousal or intimacy or sense of um, aliveness that we're talking about can mm-hmm. then be projected onto, oh, I'm in love with my therapist. Yes. That's the story, the story that mm-hmm. can be layered on top that all of a sudden robs mm-hmm. the, the truth of it, which is that this is yours, that is yes. you formed this, listen to it. I'm so glad that you're talking about this because that's where the story, the construct, the meaning that we, that we jump to, it's, it's not meaning that's grounded. It's meaning that we jump to because we're taught to be external. We're taught to look externally or how I'm feeling internally to, to give explanation. And this comes, this, this is also with that arousal, like you don't own my arousal. I own my arousal. I'm responsible for it. This is me. This is for me to enjoy. This is for me to be responsible. Mm-hmm. With, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's shifting the paradigm to not go into uh, quick, uh, hasty meaning making, but to but to learn how to have the body give the structure instead. My bones, my muscles, my my rhythms, my body movements becomes the, the containment and the structure for what I'm feeling instead of the person outside of myself, giving me the structure or the containment, you know, that that can happen in relationship, but it's about relationship with self first. I get to be the context and the container that says, you don't have to make meaning out of this right now. What's the impulse of how your body wants to move to give this pleasurable experience 
a bit of breath as well as structure to it. And so then that, that becomes where people reference, that becomes the habit instead of looking outside of myself for an explanation. Looking outside of myself can be information that I then take in and take into consideration about why I'm feeling what I'm feeling, you know? But it's not about the therapist. It's not the person falling in love with the therapist. It's the person feeling love for themselves in part because of the container that the therapist is making for them. So what are the elements of the therapist that is helpful for that person to get in touch with themselves? That's what it's actually about. And and probably that's what's actually what it's about in affairs as well. Like Esther Perel would talk about it's you're you're falling in love with yourself again. Right. Yeah. Because there's, we don't stop being erotically evolving people just because we settle down with one person. We are going to, at some point, feel attracted to somebody else. We're going to feel aroused in the presence of somebody else that is not our partner. And again, the, the culture and cultures put a lot of uh, meaning onto that, you know, shame, infidelity, not being, uh, not having fidelity in a relationship, right? What Esther is talking about is that uh, as continually erotically evolving individuals, we're going to be drawn to what the next growing edge is, what the next challenge is. And there might be someone who shows up in our life that has qualities to them that's really exciting to us. And it's not about that person like, oh gosh, maybe I'm with the wrong partner here and I need to actually be with this other person. That's like a thousand steps down the road. That's not even what it's about most likely. Maybe it is, you know, maybe it is. But initially it's about, wow, what is it about that person that's so exciting to me? That What are the qualities? What, how do they live their life? How do they move their bodies in a way that is inspiring to me? That's, in, that's inspiring me to, again, take that in-breath and expand even further into the space and grow myself in this moment, you know? And when we realize that, then we can bring that information back into our relationship and we get to have a conversation with our, our partner or partners to say, wow, I just had this experience. I think there's something going on for me here. You know, can we explore this together or, or I'm going to explore this myself, you know, and based on the values of the relationship, like if this is a non-monogamous couple, they would say, well, is this someone that you want to explore with? And then they would talk about it and they would have a conversation and negotiate what that's about. But again, affairs happen a lot of the time because of this lack of awareness and disconnection from our sexuality, that abject part of self that then takes us over and we just can't help ourselves anymore, you know, and that's not an excuse, but that's, that's an understanding, you know? So I, when I work with people where there's been someone who's gone outside the boundaries of the negotiated relationship, you know, this is what we talk about. Like, we're going to bring this to the surface. We're going to talk about what happened. You know, we don't need to give every single detail. That's another thing that Esther says is you don't have to give every single detail. In fact, you probably shouldn't because really it's the overall situation that needs to be explored. So going back to what is it about this person that was attractive to you? What is it that you 
you got from, who did you get to be with this other person that you really liked and realized that you needed to be, you know? And once um, again, this is an opportunity for the holding that you described earlier. Yeah. When someone has a yes or they have a no in the mm -hmm. relationship and it's moving outside of maybe the bedrooms mm -hmm. context, but it's moving out into the relational context of, mm -hmm. I had this profound yes for another. I'm working through what that means. Mm -hmm. What was it? Yeah. And, and adopting that this is interesting mm -hmm. curiosity with a partner who doesn't once again feel it as rejection. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not about rejecting me. It's about you growing into the next layer of who you are. They're like erotic earthquakes that shake shit up, you know? Yeah. A renegotiation or a reforming or a mm -hmm. um, reimagining, right? Whether we're afraid of what, where imagination can take us or not. Yeah. In terms of how we grow. So when you were talking about the whole body being ero erogenous, mm -hmm. um, one of the things that came up for me was like, I have a thing with fingertips, like touching fingertips, mm -hmm. especially if like, I'm not watching it, but mm -hmm. I'm just feeling it. That's mm -hmm. part of my map. <laughs> like, I know that that's part of my map and it's such a good yeah. one, you know, like that's maybe resource. Yeah. land of just a beautiful mm -hmm. erotic place and even sometimes when I practice an authentic movement I can feel mm -hmm. that erotic aliveness in the touching of my fingers yeah um yeah it feels really curious and so sensitive mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah all these all these ways that eroticism can show up for us that are not not obvious and not a part of that that uh template that we all think is but but finding eroticism that that sensory pleasure in the tips of your fingers that's a whole world right there a whole world also thinking about how much we use our hands one of the things i have clients do is I have them like flop their hands on their partner's body somehow, just like, bleh, you know, <laughs> and a lot of people will say like, oh, that feels familiar. Oh God. <laughs> you know, because that's, we just so unconsciously touch things. Yeah. We so unconsciously touch our partner's body or unconsciously touch our own bodies. And so when you talk about really bringing all of your erotic awareness to your fingertips, that's a whole world opening up right there. It is. I love it. It's like, and then what happens in the rest of your body, the rest of the map of your body, when you're feeling your fingertips, mm -hmm. are you asking me? <laughs> <laughs> it could be a direct question or it could be a general question. You get to choose yeah, your so podcast. <laughs> So we can actually, um, like, I think that's kind of a fun thing to put out to anyone who's listening of, do you have something? And then what happens in the rest of your body? And maybe just writing about it or talking to your partner about it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. It could open some windows and doors. The other one that came up for me really strongly is um, me in relation to the environment. Yes. So I've been... Um, 
I'm probably definitely going to cut this. I'm just warning you. I'm not sure I'm brave enough to say vulva on my, on my uh, podcast, but I am. Vulva. <laughs> <laughs> Let's practice. Vulva. Vulva. <laughs> so I've been, um, I've been ocean swimming. Mm. And it's really cold and it's shocking. And you enter the water. The first time was like, I was so loud because it was so intense. And then as I've gotten better at it, more comfortable with it, I really focus on my breath and I focus on connecting with the phenomena of my body. And my body is essentially, you know, all of the energy is contracting to my center yeah, (laughs) to save my organs. So I'm becoming um, numb. But one of the things, one of the parts of the body that I notice is my vulva. And I think that's probably normal. Like that's mm-hmm. a very rich zone of yes. sense. So many nerve endings there. So and many. Very, the, the blood, uh, the, the erectile tissue is so close to your skin. It's very, very, very sensitive. I didn't expect that, I guess. So it's, yeah. it's, it's bringing me into connection in a very different way. Mm-hmm. This part of my body that I wouldn't normally think about. Beautiful. Thank you. I did some movement in nature recently and mm-hmm. I had this deep experience with um, moss. Mm. And at first I was feeling it with my feet. Yeah. And then someone gave me an invitation to feel it with other parts of my body. Mm-hmm. And it was incredibly um, pleasurable mm-hmm. to move and to feel my body connecting with lush moss mm-hmm. in a place where I felt safe, safe mm-hmm. enough to explore it and to move my back, my, my, my chest, arms, you know, Mm -hmm. elbows, legs, just feeling all parts connecting in. Yeah. Yeah. The, and, and as you're talking about feeling the moss, the, the texture and the life that's in the moss allows our body to expand its movement repertoire. It's it's repertoire of experience. We're going to move differently with a patch of moss perhaps than we would with our lover's body. But once we have had a relationship with the moss and learned how to touch it in the ways that allow it to still have its life and its movement to it, we're going to be touching our lover's body differently after that. We have a different knowing in ourself than we did before we had a relationship with the moss. Similar with trees, if you follow, you're talking about fingertips, right? So if you follow the contours of a tree with your fingertips, the touch that it is that is invited from your body in relationship to that tree is going to change how I touch my own body, how I touch my lover's body. It expands our awareness and repertoire. We're going to have a different relationship with trees from then on. We see that we see trees as the beloved. We see moss as the beloved, something that we're having a sensual connection with. And again, what important medicine, especially for these times, that we have that kind of respectful, loving relationship with natural features of the earth. Absolutely. I'm sitting here with the thought about that reciprocity, that Mm -hmm. how I touch the moss might impact the 
the curiosity with which I touch a lover yeah. and how we learn to touch one another as lovers mm-hmm. yeah. informs how we touch the body of the earth. Mm-hmm. Eco-sexuality should be a part of sex education, especially as younger people having relationship with the earth that's respectful, that is exploring sensation. Also, you know, because you could, you could touch moss in a way that could damage it, or you could touch moss in a way that preserves the integrity of it. And, and also you get to have a relationship with it with your hands. Um, just in this moment, as we're talking, I'm thinking that could be, that could be a really interesting thing to incorporate into sex education, you know, like take, take teenagers out into the, the, the forest, you know, or some natural feature that's, that's close by to them and have them practice consent with a tree. Can I touch you? How do I touch you in a way that's respectful and is this enjoyable for me and being present with whatever sensation comes up? I love that. We, um, we haven't talked at all about <clears throat> your, um, your cancer and mm-hmm. your healing mm-hmm. um, and how that connected you back in deeply with the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also conscious of time. We've been on for like, an hour and a half, and I know we love each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, wanna, I want there to be consent. Consent, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, I think I could talk for another 15, 20 minutes. Okay. And then I'll need to go and get ready for my next, my next thing. Yes. You created this book, and it was driven by this passion that you have and this curiosity and um, this profound yes that came up over and over again in your body about this topic of sensuality and sexuality and drew you different places to Mm -hmm. try to find integration within Mm -hmm. the realms that you exist. After you wrote it, you learned that you, you were diagnosed with cancer. You found out. Yes. The month that my book was published, I found out that I had breast cancer, which was just this last January. Hasn't even been a year yet. And so here I was about to dive into promoting my book and hoping to, you know, do book release parties and travel and maybe go on podcasts and things like that. And I was was preparing for that. And then very quickly, I had to pull in pretty far into myself, into my home, into my body. And as soon as I found out, I found out that it was, it's what they call DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ, which on one hand, I have been very fortunate because it's stage zero, which means it was not invasive cancer yet. The recommendation is pretty radical surgery especially because of my age, I'm 42. So they recommend uh, mastectomy. And in that moment, I made the commitment that I was going to <clears throat> be with my body, that I was not going to disconnect from my body, that I was going to connect 
that much more deeply to my body and practice every ounce of somatic skillfulness I have so that I could heal well and come out on the other side of it more whole than I was before, even as I was losing parts of my body. That's such a profound statement that I just want to pause with to be more whole Mm -hmm. after you come through, even if you lose parts. Yeah. With the extensiveness of the DCIS, they recommended not just a single mastectomy, but a double mastectomy um, because of the chance of it appearing in the other breast. And they talked about what that would look like for me in terms of the years ahead. And I have a daughter and I have a partner that I love and I have a life that I love and a career that I love. And I decided to have a double mastectomy with reconstruction. I was lucky to have the reconstruction um, simultaneously um, because I trusted that my body would be able to heal. And I, I trusted my body. I trusted my body. I was very fortunate to have amazing surgeons um, here in Colorado. And I trusted that I could, that I could uh, still experience a fullness in my body, even though I was losing a major organ. The breasts are a major organ of the body. They're not an organ that keeps us alive, obviously, but they're a major sensory organ. And so the way, the way that my body is integrated now is different. And I'm still very much in the integration process. I also, during this uh, journey, had a hysterectomy in the middle of it. So I lost my uh, uterus as well. And I didn't lose my uterus. I willingly gave up my uterus changed my center of gravity and my experience of my body. It changed my arousal map, having my uterus removed. So all along this way, I knew that these surgeries, I had three surgeries in all. I knew these surgeries would change my body landscape, first of all, dramatically. I also knew that these surgeries were a doorway over the years. I've worked with people who have had all kinds of major surgeries, um, people who've experienced cancer, people who've experienced major scoliosis that, you know, had to have like a back fusion, hip surgeries, all kinds of things. And every time I told them, this is an opportunity for you to grow the foundations of your body to 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 relearn how to walk in your body, to relearn how to inhabit your body. That when we go through such a massive healing process, it's an opportunity for us to wake up the deepest recesses of our brain and our nervous system and our muscular tissue to learn something new, to learn a new way. And I had said that to so many people. And now I'm looking at myself in the mirror saying, this journey is going to change your body drastically. It's going to change the landscape of your body. And I have an opportunity here to inhabit my body more fully through this process. Yeah. And I was 
privileged enough to be able to have the space to do that. My partner was very supportive. My mom came out to help take care of things. And every morning after this surgery, I woke up to a body that felt very strange and was very painful. Mastectomies are very painful. And I didn't take the stronger pain meds because, you know, they gave me oxy and I don't like how that feels in my body at all. And so I would wake up every morning and feel the strangeness of my body. Before this, I was going so fast, such a fast pace, doing so many things, writing a book, seeing clients. I decelerated to the point of being so present with my body, feeling the points of pain and how they radiate out into other places of my body, how my body organized around the pain so slowly. I would breathe and and move my body in a way that gave the pain just a little more space, a little more breath. How I did everything was impacted through that process of learning how to relate with the pain in a way that allowed it to be there, loving my body through that process of saying hello and greeting my body parts. Because I had practiced, like in the five rhythms work, we practice greeting our body parts before we begin the five rhythm sequence. And so that was the practice that I called on was greeting each part of my body. How do my feet feel today? My legs, my hips, my um, stomach, my, my vulva, my, 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 my breasts that were not my breasts anymore. You know, the area around it, the area through it, just my whole body. What happened was I was so much more awake in my body than I ever have been even through all the somatic work that I've do, that I've done all the years that I've that I've danced and studied my my own body and you know never have I been as awake as I was during those months of of the healing process I started to unravel even deeper deeper learning deeper paradigms around my sexuality and my body my own story you know, what is it, what does it mean to be attractive? What does it mean to feel attractive? What does it mean to feel pleasure in my body in, in a body that's so different? And I'm just starting to, to be able to describe this experience. I've written a few things about it so far, but I'm just, I'm just now starting to really put language to it because while I was going through this process, any like meta thoughts that I would have about what does this mean? And what, you know, any of those larger thoughts, I did not even entertain them because it's this moment and now this moment and now this moment and now this moment for months, months. I'm sitting here with you and I'm so honored that you are sharing it in this moment. Mm -hmm. And with, with just, just the truth of it. I feel the tenderness of within me. I feel a tenderness towards reclaiming. Um, and it does remind me of what you're describing reminds me of infant development. Mm -hmm. Meta. It's really just like, hello toes. Yes. Hello toes (laughs) in my mouth. 
<laughs> Which you probably didn't do, but you might do now. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just the, the, this process of you discovery speaking to all the body parts, the ones that were still familiar mm-hmm. as well as the ones that were not yet known and, and integrated just feels so profoundly loving and to have the systems around you that allowed you to really take that time. Yes. Yeah. I was really fortunate. I hear a lot of stories of people going through cancer surgery and treatment that did not have the space given to them to do that. And a part of their work is them learning how to request and create those spaces for themselves. Me being able to have that space was just indispensable in me coming through this well, as well as I did. There's not enough of that Mm -hmm. in our society. There's so much, I would say, despair Mm -hmm. around the losses that happen, Mm -hmm. which despairs part of Mm -hmm. is part of loss and is part of grieving those moments. Um, Yeah. So, but being equipped and encouraged through your training, as well as through the support systems to re-inhabit and Mm re-enliven as you had invited clients to do before. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You were inviting yourself into it and you stepped into it. There I was mothering myself, mothering my own body through the process. I think because of the habits that I had developed, I, I trained my whole life to have those surgeries. I trained my whole life to be awake, to, to be able to mother myself through that process. So when grief would present itself, my thoughts would start to go to all kinds of places. <clears throat> I found ways for my body to make space for the grief and find, found movements that moved with the pain in mind, with the physical pain in mind to allow the, the grief to move through as well so that the grief could then become something else. Even now having moments of grief, moments of fear come up and taking those moments for the, to, to give my body the space to move whatever emotion comes up is that, that is the fuel for transformation. The book that I wrote, ironically enough, is titled Whole Body Sex. And I don't have my whole body anymore. In losing those parts of my body, believe that much more in what I wrote. We incorporate an erotic bodyfulness practice with ourselves and that pleasure is possible no matter what. And that wholeness is not about the, the objective frame and, and, and function of my body. It's about so much more than that. And it takes it back to your question of how is embodiment? It's, it's the way that we relate with our bodies, not what our bodies look like, not what our bodies, what configuration we're in. It's about how we relate to our bodies because we have so much possibility. These bodies are so magnificent. And I got to feel how magnificent my own body is 
throughout an experience of being taken apart and put back together, literally. And so I inhabit my body differently now. And I inhabit my work differently now. And it's so beautiful. My work is staying awake to that beauty and staying awake in those practices, even as my life has accelerated again and I've gone back to work and I've gone back to writing and I can pick up my daughter again. I can, you know, so I couldn't pick up over a pound for almost two months. Well, longer than that, because with each surgery I had, to, I had lift restrictions, so I couldn't lift anything and my muscles atrophied and it was incredibly painful, that part of it. So now I can, I can do all those things. Now I can lift weights. I can, can't quite do a pull up again yet, but I'm working on it. You know? And so now the practice is, okay, how do I, how do I stay awake in that way? The way that I did on those mornings, greeting my body, one body part at a time, one area at a time, one emotion at a time, bringing that into my day-to-day life, even as the pace has quickened again. Yeah. Melissa, thank you so much for sharing your, your journey and your connections and all of the wisdom. Thank you for witnessing me. Mm, Such an honor. Mm. Magnificent. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you to Melissa Walker for engaging with me so wholeheartedly in this conversation and inspiring me to inquire about my own erotic bodyfulness. Thank you to the Embodied Education Institute of Chicago for sponsoring the training coming up in August. Please check out our website for more information. And thank you to Josie Rothwell for the opening credits and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing credits. And thank you to my listener for joining me in the return to embodiment. Open to end time.